GHG Phase 2 is going to change the way we build diesel engines. I'm Jim Park, this is HDT Talks Trucking Season 7 Episode 1. It's going to take a lot more than better aerodynamics and low rolling resistance tires to meet the EPA's next round of emissions reductions for heavy trucks. The joint rulemaking between the Environmental Protection Agency and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is going to tighten down carbon emissions and boost fuel economy for heavy trucks by 25% by 2027. Trucks from model year 2021 are included in that rulemaking. All the OEMs met those requirements handily and vehicle owners hardly noticed. That probably won't be the case in 2024 and we will certainly notice the changes needed to meet the 2027 standards. Much of what's coming our way will happen under the hood. Cylinder deactivation, advanced exhaust gas recirculation, mild hybridization and more. Joining me on this episode to explain what these advanced technologies are and how they work is Dr. Mihai Dorabuntu, the Eaton Vehicle Group's Director of Technology Planning and Government Affairs. Mihai and his team have been looking at the possible solutions for the upcoming emissions hurdles. That conversation begins right after this. This episode is brought to you by Fleet Safety Experience, a powerful digital gathering for the fleet safety community. Presented by Automotive Fleet, Work Truck and Heavy Duty Trucking Magazines, the 2021 Fleet Safety Experience takes place virtually September 21st, 22nd and 23rd. Go to fleetsafetyconference.com to learn more. So Mihai, welcome to the HTT Talks Trucking Podcast. Thank you, Jim. I'm excited to participate in, in the podcast. Well, these are pretty exciting times for diesel engine engineers, aren't they? Oh, uh, they're certainly complex. Uh, they're complex um, because I think uh, the um, uh, the environment in which we live is starting to bifurcate, and there are people who are uh, seeing the um, uh, the death of the internal combustion engine as we know it, and they think it's pretty imminent. And then there are people that I think are a little bit more realistic who realize that the heavy-duty diesel engine is probably here to stay for quite a while until we find, um, you know, uh, zero um, uh, emissions uh, alternatives, especially for um, high-power applications and for long-haul freight. And I think those days are, are coming when we will find an alternative, but it probably won't be for quite a while, as you say. Uh, so the purpose of today's discussion really is to get into some of that technology that's going to help uh, keep diesel engines on the road for uh, the foreseeable future. Uh, I just want to start this discussion with the, uh, you know, a bit of a talk about the emissions reductions challenges that we face going forward. We've got 2024, 2027, you know, getting awfully close now and probably more beyond that. So how do those regulations compare with where we are today? How much of a hump is it going to be to get over those? Oh, Jim, um, the, the hump is quite large. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And it, and it is also necessary. So the emission reduction numbers that we're looking uh, for um, when we talk about CO2, which really is also synonymous with, um, uh, with fuel economy, are, are pretty large. So we're really talking about 25%, even 30% reduction over this decade. Um, uh, the uh, greenhouse gas phase two, uh, uh, came into effect this year in 2021. It will run through 2027, and it's uh, going to reduce the um, uh, CO2 emissions 
of, um, uh, say, a, a sleeper cab by more than 25%. And in Europe, something similar is happening. They have a 15% reduction target in uh, 2025, followed by a 30% uh, reduction target in 2030. That might be even more stringent than the numbers that are, are being vehicled right, right now. And this is really important because the technologies that underlie the CO2 reductions are in fact global technologies. So we, we look at the EPA uh, regulations, at the California regulations, and, and we tend to think that you know, the, these are driving our, um, uh, our future. But the reality is that uh, we're seeing the same regulatory move in Europe. We're seeing uh, the same regulatory move happening in China. So these CO2 emission reductions are both necessary because there really isn't an electrical, um, uh, a viable electrical alternative or hydrogen alternative today. And they are, uh, they are large and they are global. So I think it is coming. The good news here though, is that CO2 reduction, which is good for the planet, is also fuel reduction, which is good for the bottom line. So that's in terms of CO2. What is really interesting uh, in this decade and what might be an engineer's dream really, is that these CO2 reductions come together with some enormous cuts in um, uh, so-called criteria pollutant or harmful emissions, but it's really all about NOx, uh, nitrous uh, oxides. Th these reductions are again monumental. We're looking at an 80 to 90% reduction in these emission levels. This is equivalent to what happened between you know, 2001 and 2010 in, in the US or what happened in Europe between Euro 3 and Euro 6. So we're gonna see yet another uh, wave of reductions of the same order of magnitude together with the CO2 reductions. And that is the key technology challenge because until today, we have essentially traded CO2 for NOx and NOx for CO2. So when you have to simultaneously reduce them by these enormous numbers, uh, that creates uh, space for some real ingenuity and some real technology to, um, uh, to, uh, to hit the market. So, you know, people kind of um, uh, say that um, um, nobody should be investing in, in, um, in internal combustion engines because for sure they're gonna go away. I think it's gonna be exactly the opposite. There's gonna be a lot of investment in the internal combustion engine because it cannot go away because it is such a large producer of CO2 today and because it is such a large producer of NOx and therefore smog, contributor to smog and, um, and, uh, and, and ozone uh, today. And, and that is the challenge that uh, our transportation sector has to face over the next decade or this decade actually. So obviously, aero or better aerodynamics and low rolling resistance tires aren't going to be enough to meet these challenges. What kind of technology are folks like you looking at right now? Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right, Jim. Uh, there's so much that you can do from um, aero and, um, and tires. We really have to look deep into the engine uh, technologies and in the after treatment system. So um, obviously, engine efficiency so whatever we can do to improve engine efficiency uh, will be good because it just means that we're going to burn less fuel for the same amount of work. Less fuel means less carbon emitted. And um, 
we're also going to have to look into the after treatment system to um, have perhaps a little bit more after treatment than we have today, but more importantly, have an after treatment unit that's focused on the transients and the low load, which is something that we don't do today. And that's where a lot of the emissions are happening. And then finally, there's going to be system level technologies that essentially help the after treatment by controlling or increasing the temperature of the exhaust to keep the after treatment in its um, uh, sweet spot. On top of all of this, there is a lot of electrification going on. And this is, in fact, where we're going to see synergies between electrification in the vehicles themselves in that part of the fleet that is going to electrify and the larger fleet, the larger diesel fleet that can still um, use some of the scale uh, or provide scale really for some of the technologies uh, that are being developed for uh, pure electric vehicles. So the fact that we're going to have things like power electronics, inverters, and so forth, anyhow being developed for commercial vehicle use, that's actually going to help the conventional diesel as well. Fascinating. Wow. Okay. So let's dive into a couple of things that are sort of on the radar screen, like uh, cylinder deactivation. Various ways of doing that, but I think that's one of the things you were referring to when you talked about uh, how to keep the after-treatment temperature high and therefore the NOx conversion more efficient. Yeah. And, and Jim, this is an excellent example. So cylinder deactivation is a known technology. It's used in past cars for uh, gasoline uh, engines for a completely different purpose, for a fuel economy purpose, actually. Uh, but in commercial vehicles, it achieves two functions. One function is, as you pointed out, it actually provides more heat into the exhaust, it heats up the exhaust, and it does help with these low load idle situations by, by keeping the exhaust higher, uh, exhaust temperature higher, by, and burning the same amount of, um, uh, of fuel. And it's kind of intuitively easy to understand. You're putting the same amount of fuel, but in half the engine, the temperature is going to be higher, the exhaust um, uh, temperature is going to be higher, your after treatment system is going to like that uh, better, you're starting to close that gap, that temperature gap with the after treatment system. But at the same time, cylinder deactivation does offer um, a, um, a, a, a CO2 advantage, a fuel economy advantage. So it's one of these technologies that um, its primary value is in NOx management and NOx reduction, but because it has a CO2 reduction function, it kind of pays for itself in terms of um, CO2. It's also very interesting that cylinder deactivation is a major component of um, very high efficiency engine brakes. Has nothing to do with emissions, but has a lot to do with performance. So if you have already paid, so to speak, for cylinder deactivation, for example, for the modest CO2 uh, improvement, but you get a significant NOx improvement, and then you get a functional improvement in terms of safety and engine brake, that's kind of a win-win-win type of technology that, um, uh, that, that we're looking for. Now, is, is cylinder deactivation, quote-unquote, as a concept, the same as variable valve actuation, or are the two sort of interchangeable but different? Cylinder deactivation is one type of variable valve uh, 
actuation. Uh, there are other uh, variable valve actuation technologies such as late intake uh, valve closing or early exhaust uh, valve uh, opening. Um, these are all called variable valve actuation and cinder deactivation is certainly one of them. So it, it's a subset of the variable valve actuation uh, family. I will say that that the thinking has shifted in, in the past um, uh, year or so. Uh, if you would have asked or, or polled the community uh, maybe two, three years ago, many people would have bet on uh, uh, early exhaust uh, uh, valve opening. I think now those bets have moved squarely in the camp of cinder deactivation. I see. Okay. So one of the strategies we use now to uh, mitigate NOx to some degree is uh, exhaust gas recirculation, cooled exhaust gas recirculation. I know Eaton and, and you are, are working on uh, exhaust gas recirculation pumps, uh, which is, I guess, taking that to the next level. Can you explain uh, what those are, how they work, and how they'll you know fit into the new uh, 2027 engines? Yeah. Okay, so, so let's take a step back in, and see how exhaust gas is being managed today on heavy-duty diesels. The way it's managed today, so uh, this uh, principle, the physics is very simple. You take a, a gas from the exhaust and you put it into the, uh, into the intake cylinders. And in that way, uh, there is less oxygen available when the combustion happens, which produces and therefore produces less NOx, because NOx is a byproduct of excess oxygen um, and if you reduce the amount of oxygen by throwing in exhaust gas, then you reduce the uh, opportunity for NOx. But the problem here is that in order to do that, you have to drive exhaust back into the intake. Your exhaust pressure has to be higher than your intake pressure, because otherwise the gas just won't flow in that direction. And when you do that, two things happen. One is that you, uh, your engine has so-called pumping losses. The engine would really like to have the same pressure in the exhaust in intake manifolds. And if the exhaust pressure is higher, we're forcing the engine to do extra work to, uh, uh, to work against that higher exhaust pressure. And, and that's, um, uh, that's a negative on, uh, on efficiency. The second thing that happens is that the device by which we drive um, uh, exhaust gas back into the intake manifold, the way we create that extra pressure is by throttling the turbocharger. This is the variable geometry turbocharger. And we use that turbocharger really to restrict the exhaust flow so that some portion of the uh, exhaust gas goes into the intake manifold. That again, uh, that limits the capabilities of the turbocharger. So at the end of the day, it's a penalty on boost. So the current way of managing uh, exhaust gas circulation is a hit on pumping losses. It, it creates pumping losses and it handicaps the, um, uh, the turbocharger. So it handicaps the ability to create boost. The third benefit of the uh, EGR pump is that it allows you to drive accurately quite large quantities of exhaust gas when the um, at low loads when the after treatment system is at its most challenged uh, situation. Uh, with uh, with the current technologies, you cannot do that. You cannot drive uh, significant uh, EGR uh, at low loads. But with an EGR pump you actually can do that. And that means that you will be producing less NOx in the engine and that helps 
the after treatment when the after treatment system is, uh, is cold. And again, we see the same pattern. We see one device and it has a CO2 benefit because it enables the um, uh, high efficiency turbo and uh, the uh, reduction of uh, pumping losses. Uh, it, it has a NOx benefit because it provides um, uh, the uh, right amount of EGR with a low uh, penalty, a low CO2 penalty. And then it provides this extra lever uh, to work uh, the engine out NOx in uh, in those operating points where the after-treatment system today is quite challenged. Well, you know, with uh, offboarding some of those uh, demand loads on the engine uh, with electric motors, as you've described here, there's other technologies, other bits of engine componentry that can be uh, downloaded to an electric motor as well to relieve some of the pressure on the engine. Uh, I think some people call that mild hybridization or electrification, offboarding. There's a number of terms for it, but what are some of the other things that we're, we can uh, disconnect from the engine electrically, so to speak? Yeah. So um, today's engine, for, for robustness reasons and for simplicity and, and so forth, have fixed displacement, oil pumps, water pumps, and, uh, and, and so forth. When you're trying to fight for the last bit of efficiency, it is more efficient to run um, uh, these pumps electrically so that you can control and provide the right amount of flow and the right amount of, um, uh, and even turn it off uh, when, when, when not needed. And I'm talking here about the oil pump and, and, and the water pump. Um, and you can do that electrically quite efficiently. Now, there is a cost to doing that, right? Because you're not driving something off a belt. Now you're driving these machines with uh, uh, each with their own electrical motor and so forth. So just for that purpose to electrify the, um, uh, the engine doesn't quite make sense. But we're seeing now the adoption of 48 volt technology. And what 48 volt essentially enables is uh, for, for the vehicle manufacturers to quadruple the amount of electrical power that they can produce on board and still have reasonable cables. Um, so an alternator today probably produces somewhere in the vicinity of two to three kilowatts. A 48 volt uh, motor generator could produce actually you know, 10 to 20, um, maybe even more um, uh, kilowatts of electrical power. So that opens some opportunities. If you have that kind of electrical power, you might want to actually go into the after treatment system and put an electric heater there to very quickly heat up the um, after treatment, uh, especially when coming out of idle or, or low load. So that is one advantage. That's another uh, lever that, that you can operate. Now you have a basis to electrify your pumps and, and get that one or 2% uh, additional efficiency uh, or fuel consumption benefit uh, in, in the engine by running those pumps at uh, at the needed displacement, not at the maximum displacement um, all the time. And the third feature is, uh, the, the, I think the best feature here, is that uh, that amount of um, electrical power can also be regenerated by, uh, you know, through brake regeneration. And this is the mild hybrid um, illusion uh, that, that uh, you, you made. So not only that when you go to a 48 volt system, you have more power so you can do your, uh, your pumps and you can do this uh, electrical heating, you have more power for even the electronics 
on, on board uh, as we're thinking about driver assist and uh, all kinds of uh, electronics for navigation and information and, and uh, various levels of uh, autonomy. All these consume enormous amounts of electrical power that, you know, today is uh, infeasible uh, on, uh, on a truck. So this movement to 4E volt truck is yet another example of one investment that has multiple benefits in terms of fuel economy, in terms of um, autonomous driving features uh, on, on the truck, in terms of a faster and better after treatment uh, system with kind of one investment. And oh, by the way, if uh, on the cycles where, where, where you can, if you regenerate that power from the brakes, it comes for quote unquote for free. For free. Yeah. That, that's the amazing part of it. You're not you know, loading the engine to produce energy, to use energy somewhere else on the engine. You're freeing the engine. I don't know how much horsepower you, you take away from the engine, but uh, like you say, producing it during coasting or regenerative braking, there's no cost to that. Yeah. Uh, t- today, that energy we just throw away as, yeah, as heat, heat. And, yeah, and the brakes. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, amazing. Well, speaking of heat, uh, the other thing that uh, is on everybody's radar screen these days is weight heat, uh, waste heat recovery. Now, this is a bit of a mystery to me. Uh, I know there's, uh, in, in the engine economy vernacular, we talk about brake thermal efficiency, uh, how efficient an engine is from a percentage point, how much of that energy and fuel is converted to, to power. Uh, where does waste heat come in? What can we do with that? If you um, uh, burn fuel today, about a third of the energy in that fuel makes it to the wheels. About a third of the energy... Uh, 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 from from the uh, burning of the fuel actually makes it into the cooling jacket of the engine and sort of a load on the radiator. And yet another third, very roughly speaking, of course, uh, makes it out the stack in, in the form of just uh, heated uh, exhaust uh, gas. Um, the problem with these sources of heat is that there are so-called low quality heat, which means heat is heat, it is energy, but it is at low temperature, at relatively low temperature. And when you have heat at low temperature, it's harder, it's significantly more difficult to transform it into useful mechanical work. But the super truck programs have looked uh, at, at these technologies. There's a lot of interesting and intelligent technology that has been developed under the super truck programs with waste heat recovery, And I think people are convinced that waste heat recovery in general can account to up to 5% of brake thermal efficiency. That translates roughly into 10% fuel consumption reduction. So the the problem uh, with with, uh, low temperature uh, in the exhaust and even in the EGR cooler and even the cooling jackets, the so-called low quality heat, is that in order to transform that heat into useful work, you need very large heat exchangers and you need very sophisticated turbo machinery. And that tends to make the uh, these waste heat recovery technologies heavy, large, and expensive. And all these three kind of work against what we're trying to achieve. So um, that, that I think what that does is it puts waste heat recovery as a technology of so-called last resort. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. Okay. All right. So we've been through three or four major technologies. Uh, was there any others that are, are that we're looking at right now or before we wrap up for a little break here? 
Okay. Well, um, an, uh, an interesting one uh, that is evolving is um, the uh, using hydrogen as a fuel. Uh, so uh, I think five years ago, three years ago, people were talking, well, and are still talking that we'll use hydrogen to uh, build fuel cells, and that would be a zero emissions um, uh, mechanism. I think what people are realizing, and this comes mostly from Europe, but I think the, the US is going that way too, is that if the hydrogen infrastructure truly comes to life, you can burn hydrogen in an internal combustion engine. That internal combustion engine that uh, burns hydrogen is not that dissimilar to a natural gas engine. That's something that our community knows how to build. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and if you're burning hydrogen, you're producing water. There is no carbon in that equation. So it becomes a truly zero carbon solution that reuses, recasts, if you wish, which is not an easy task, but recasts the internal combustion engine uh, as a, um, um, uh, to use um, hydrogen fuel. And that is pretty significant. And there's no contradiction with fuel cells. In fact, that would accelerate the deployment of hydrogen. Yeah. So I think, you know, sort of long-term, that's, that's another interesting alternative. The efficiency of burning hydrogen that way is similar to that of natural gas engines, which is pretty good, maybe 40%, but it's um, relatively low compared to fuel cells, which are more like 60% efficient. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's, that's significant in terms of consuming hydrogen for the same amount of work. But if you can do, uh, but fuel cells are a very uncertain technology, whereas building a hydrogen engine it's not easy, but it's not a new technology. It's not something unknown to the industry. There's installed capital. There is, uh, you know, it uses the same valves. It uses the same uh, turbochargers. It uses the same EGR. And um, uh, so, so there's a lot that can be done, but it is truly zero carbon at the uh, tailpipe. <laughs> That's where we're trying to get at the end of the day. So if it's yeah. hydrogen... Uh, you know, totally fueling an internal combustion engine. I've done some research into that and there's up and downsides to it. And I'm not going to get into those now, but uh, it, it's probably not an ideal compromise. But like you say, if if it could be used to uh, kickstart the hydrogen economy, uh, yeah. and get the fuel cell side coming online faster, then it's sort of a net net gain, really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a short pause here, Mihai. Uh, when we come back after the little break, uh, let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit about uh, you know, what it's going to take to get some of these uh, technologies into service and uh, also take a look at the, uh, the Super Truck 2 project, which is now four or five years in. We talked about Super Truck before. We'll go back to Super Truck 2 and see where we are. I'm talking mm -hmm. to uh, Mihai Dorabuntu. He's the Director of Technology Planning and Government Affairs for Eaton's Vehicle Group. And I just want to remind you, if there's something you'd like us to cover on the podcast, please email me at jpark at truckinginfo.com. We'll be back right after this. Fleet Safety Experience is back. It's the virtual version of Bobbitt's popular Fleet Safety Conference. This year's program looks at managing high-risk drivers, the relationship between technology and safety, coping with a fleet fatality, and more. The NTSB's Rob Malloy delivers this year's keynote presentation on crash investigation and highway safety. Fleet Safety Experience is all about improving safety for light, medium, and heavy-duty vehicle fleets. Go to FleetSafetyConference.com to view the full agenda. 
We're back with Dr. Mihai Dorobuntu. He's the Director of Technology Planning and Government Affairs at the Eaton Vehicle Group. Uh, Mihai, we talked a little bit earlier about some of the uh, other emissions regulations that are around the world right now. We've got the U.S. EPA and CARB here, for example. We've got the Euro standards. We've got standards for Japan and Australia. Is there any possibility going forward that we're ever going to see a global uh, emission standard where the engine makers can design one engine to work everywhere that they operate? Um, being involved uh, by the nature of my job with, with regulators in, in all the major uh, uh, regions, I don't think that we are going to see anytime soon the, um, uh, the same regulations. Uh, however, I think that we are going to see a convergence in the stringencies. So the duty cycles will be different. The uh, uh, the actual levels of you know on particular duty cycles of NOx and CO2 and particulate matter are going to be different, but they are all going to be very stringent. So at the end of the day, our prediction is that by 2027, between 2027 and 2030, we're going to see essentially the same technology in um, in Europe and in the US as far as uh, the diesel engine goes, just given what these trucks will have to do, as well as the ambition, the CO2 ambitions and the NOx ambitions uh, of the um, uh, society that is being driven through, uh, through regulations. So no to the same cycles, but we think that it's gonna be very much the same technology packages. Nobody likes talking dollars and cents, uh, but all this technology sounds like it's going to be pretty expensive. Any idea, uh, and I know, don't put a dollar and cent on this, but uh, how much cost do you think some of this technology could add to the cost of a truck? So let me give you uh, a great answer here. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. You're the first guy's ever told me that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so look, uh, of course, uh, let me make a few remarks here. If we look for individual features to improve, and then we put in very specific technologies to improve that feature, the cost of all these features are going to be additive. They're just going to add, 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 and you will end up with a huge cost and a very complex system too, right? Very fragile system because you will have, you know, a cornopia of uh, technologies. But I think that uh, there's a lot of room here for uh, people to be intelligent. So we've talked about synergy activation, how it has multiple, one technology, multiple functions, engine brake, uh, thermal management, fuel reduction. Uh, we talked about the EGR pump as being one technology with multiple functions, uh, enable um, high efficiency turbochargers, drive EGR, and drive lots of EGR in, 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 in certain um, uh, applications. We talked about electrification as having multiple functions. Uh, on the one hand, uh, being, uh, you know, tapping into that quote unquote free um, energy, but on the other hand, you know, helping with electric heaters in after treatment, helping with electric pumps to make the engine more efficient. So what do all these have in common? Smart, very smart devices, that provide multiple functions with relatively limited hardware. And then they interact with each other uh, uh, as well. So that, I think that sort of systems approach where you start 
putting multiple functions or many functions over few devices, that is one way to keep that cost and complexity uh, down. So, um, you know, we're talking about the hybrid functions, for example, but they pay off for themselves in terms of, say, fuel. We talked about um, um, uh, EGR, but it may pay itself in, uh, in um, uh, form of uh, removing other parts of equipment. We're talking about um, cylinder deactivation, but it pays itself by sort of providing engine brake capability or by providing uh, and some fuel economy. So that's kind of going to be the, um, um, the um, uh, I, I think, the real answer here. Uh, now, in terms of the cost estimates, there's another piece in the cost estimate. If you look at first costs, uh, there are a number of reports that have looked, have assessed these technologies uh, anywhere from, uh, you know, regulatory uh, agencies like the EPA or uh, or California Air Resource Board that um, uh, you know did a teardown of the technologies to evaluate real costs and so forth. And I think that you're going to see the real cost, the, the first cost of these technologies being into, uh, you know, the optimists will say five thousand dollars. For a full package, the pessimists or, or maybe the realists uh, will say maybe ten thousand dollars. Still, a, a, a lot of money. But what's not being said is that at the same time, especially as these uh, devices become more and more complex, there is a um, a need for them to also function, you know, for a million miles. So there's a durability and a life. Uh, expectancy of these devices, part of that driven by regulations. So I think the regulators are waking up and saying, wait a minute, we want NOx reduction, but not just for the first four years of use of the truck or the first 465,000 miles. We want those NOx reductions for 800,000 miles. That adds um, a lot of cost to the equation. Mm -hmm. So you will see some estimates, I think, that, that were thrown around in the 50,000 uh, uh, range. So kind of the same technology package, if you are only concerned about the first cost, you would say it's $4,000 increment. If you really look at the implication and other things that you have to change around the truck and stuff like that, you might find out yourself in the $10,000 range. And if you are going to assume that you're going to change that five times during the life of the truck, or, or that you have to, you know, quote unquote, gold plate it so that it actually does last for 800,000 miles or a million miles, uh, then you might be in the $40,000, $50,000 um, uh, range. But I think that's, I, I gave you a lower bound and an upper bound. And I think, you know, probably uh, the, the, the middle guess is as best as I can guess today on what these costs are going to look like in 2027. Well, I guess the alternative of not paying those costs isn't very pleasant either. <laughs> like yeah. going to the train station to pick up your groceries. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, well, before we wrap up here, or maybe as our sort of final topic to discuss, uh, the super truck program, we've mentioned that a little bit. The first one, the original super truck initiative was launched back in 2010, I think it was. Uh, the goal then was to improve freight efficiency by something like 50%. Uh, with super truck two, the program that's underway now, uh, suppliers are, are trying to improve freight efficiency by 100% compared to an equivalent 2009 model truck and improve engine brake thermal efficiency by 55%. Those are really ambitious targets. Uh, you've been following Supertruck, I think. How are we doing uh, with that project so far? 
Well, that's a really uh, in interesting topic, and, and it's a topic very near and dear to my heart, uh, Jim. Uh, Eaton is on um, uh, three of the five uh, super truck uh, projects with a significant uh, technology. Uh, th the projects actually are coming out nicely. The, um, uh, the targets are ambitious, as you've mentioned. But I think that a lot of the advanced technologies that we're talking about here for 2027 is actually being developed in the Super Truck 2 program. So I'll give one example. Um, our 48 volt strategy and uh, the uh, 48 volt uh, system architecture and the 48 volt components uh, that we are preparing for, um, uh, we, we think will be needed in the market in uh, you know, 2027 through 2030. Uh, we have started that development. We have uh, kickstarted that development uh, three years ago uh, on one of the super truck programs when people were kind of saying, nah, 48 volts is more like an R&D. Why would we ever go to 48 volts? We'll never do 48 volts. We're good with 12 volts and then we'll jump directly to electric vehicles. That was the thinking, uh, you know, three, four years ago. I think today you'll find that most of the OEMs are saying, oh, we will have 48 volts and we will start launching that in 2024, 25, and we'll be at scale in, um, uh, in, in, in 2027. The reason they're saying this is because they are now um, understanding the impact of the regulations and what they need to do. But part of that is because of programs like Supertruck, where we could take ideas that seemed crazy five years ago or unapplicable, the cynic might say a waste of taxpayer money. Now these are paying off very handsome dividends because suddenly we have technology path to achieve uh, the, these very stringent uh, numbers. Now, will, we, will the industry build that, you know, 125% um, uh, freight efficiency truck? That's probably gonna be an experimental truck. But on that experimental truck, there's a number of very real technologies that would not have been today in discussion if that program would not have been launched three years ago. So the, uh, uh, in the past three years, people kind of worked these concepts purely as concept, as a research program, as a science pro uh, project, if you wish, but it has brought the industry in a position where, yeah, we can now see how we can, we have a path to these very ambitious um, uh, regulatory goals, which are needed for societal uh, uh, reasons. We actually have technology solutions that still, you know, will, will, uh, will benefit the diesel, will keep the diesel alive, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is not to keep the diesel alive. The purpose is to have an economically viable means of transportation for the next you know, 10, 15 years. You're right. People bemoan the cost. Uh, they, they bemoan the complexity. But the alternative is literally grinding transportation as we know it to a halt. The diesel has to continue because the electric trucks aren't going to do it in the long haul. And this is a technology that we're going to have to bring to bear on that problem. And now we know that we can make these diesels fairly clean. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we can save CO2 in the process. And Sure, as technology will evolve, I'm never going to bet against technology. We will end up with hydrogen, with electrical um, uh, solutions uh, eventually. But until then, we will be able to function as, a, an, as an economy uh, 
uh, as, as we do today without being restricted uh, on, on transportation. And we will save fuel, we will reduce CO2, and we will significantly reduce NOx. Well, I sure hope some of the diesel naysayers listen to this podcast because what you've just told me over the past 40, 45 minutes is is exciting. Um, I, I'm, I'm really energized uh, to see where this is all going, and I'm, I'm glad diesel has a future, frankly. Mihai, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Jim. It was fun. Thank you. If you're a fleet safety and risk management professional, be sure to add Bobbitt's fleet safety experience to your fall calendar. This virtual event features educational sessions and expert insights to help solve your fleet safety challenges. Fleet Safety Experience takes place virtually September 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. Go to fleetsafetyconference.com to learn more. We're only about five years out from when the first of the 2027 model trucks will be hitting the street. That's not a whole lot of time considering the scope of the reductions the regulations require. At least this time around, truck and engine makers will be able to target certain technologies to certain applications. And that's much safer than a one-size-fits-all approach. If you like what you hear on the podcast, please spread the word on social media and give us a review and a rating if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts. If there's something you'd like us to cover, email me at jpark at truckinginfo.com. HGT Talks Trucking is produced by Deb Lockridge, recording and audio production by Jim Park. Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine is published by Bobbitt Business Media. I'm Jim Park. Thanks for listening.